Well, hello and welcome to episode 11 of Tea Time Declarations. This episode is called First Class or Nothing, and we're going to be looking at uh, the role of the class system in English and, and world cricket. I'm one of your hosts, Jonathan Russell. And I'm uh, Paul Seligman. And Johnny, have you been enjoying the, uh, the, the test series, the return of test cricket? I have. Yeah, in our last episode, we, we predicted uh, different things uh, about the, uh, the way things would unfold in, in India. Um, I'd say we're both in the game because we both predicted that India and England would both win at least a test match. Mm. So um, honours even. So what did I say? Did I say 3-1? I you think said I did. You said 3-2. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it's increasingly unlikely that there's going to be a draw in this series. It is definitely going to be... Well, I mean, we've had two 40-wicket games, haven't we? That's right. I mean, I, I was negative about England's prospects of taking 20 wickets at any point during mm. the, uh, the the tour. And they've done they've done that, so that's, yeah, that's sure. positive. I mean, one of the really surprising things is that England's pretty rookie spin attack does statistically is out bowling India's all-star spin attack so India's spin attacks included the likes of Aksar Patel um, Ravi uh, Ravindra Dadeja and uh, Ravichandran Ashwin you know who've got between them hundreds of test matches and thousands of test wickets and uh, and England had Jack Leach fine experienced man Rehan Ahmed and Tom Hartley in the first test match Rehan Ahmed and Tom Hartley had one test match between them, I think, at that point. Yeah, it was a, a, re- a remarkable situation in the second test too, where uh, you had Shoaib Bashir debut, Tom Hartley one test under his belt, Rayan Ahmed two tests under his belt, Jimmy Anderson one hundred and eighty-three. <laughs> <laughs> a little lopsided. And the uh, other thing is the the the, the um, emergence of Joe Root as an all-rounder, because it, statistically on the subcontinent he is an all-rounder. His batting average is way higher than his bowling average on the on the subcontinent. So there is the question mark. I think we've gone into both test matches with one pace bowler, Mark Wood in the first test match, Jimmy Anderson in the second test match. There is a, a real question about whether or not they should be relying more on Joe Root as a spinner and, and to free up space for, for their pace options. That's right, yeah, and it's come at the right time because uh, at the same time, Ben Stokes has, has moved away from his all-round status to becoming uh, a batter only and so for balance of the side it feels imperative and that it works in the subcontinent whether that works in English conditions when ideally you'd have a pace bowler as your all-rounder I don't know Uh, but I I think um, I think that the young English spinners have have started well Tom Hartley just behind Jaspeet Brummer so far uh, Hartley's got 14 wickets, an average of 24 and a half after four innings bowled. Um, England have moneyballed this, haven't they? They've they've picked two spinners entirely untested in first-class conditions. It seems basically on their release points. Yep, very high release point. Get lots of bounce. Uh, something unusual, something different for the Indian batters. Another very interesting thing for me has been the difference in styles between the two batting sides. The England team in the first test got a huge amount of success from sweep shots of various kinds. I think, did I read that Ollie Pope scored 57 runs in his 196 from sweeps? Something like that, yeah, and, a very high proportion. Um, whereas the Indian 
batters who have grown up on these wickets and against this exact type of bowling just don't sweep at all um which is interesting and also there's you know can you fix uh, a lack of sweeping in your batting technique in the couple of weeks that there were are between the the, the test matches i i think probably not so that is likely to continue um next test match there's rumors that jasper Bumrah, who took dozens of wickets in the second test is going to be rested Jadeja's not back Kohli seems to have something quite serious going on in his private life um, which is keeping him out of this uh, series so I think if England have a chance here uh, it's now they've got they've got to win now before the return of these these Indian Titans yeah and they they may rue uh, coming into the series the fact that they probably lost the second test to India's weakest side mm. on paper yeah um golden opportunity to get two nil ahead but they blew absolutely i mean it, i mean yashashvi jaiswal scored 209 runs in the first innings of the um uh the second test match and that that's that took it away from england that, that, that was it england were never really in the game after that joe root's form has been a little bit of a worry for me for some time he hasn't quite hit the heights but i think there is a certain amount of the curse of sports illustrated here do you know about the Curse of Sports no. Illustrated? Right, so Sports Illustrated magazine would put a player who was going through a hot streak on their cover. And then very regularly, the, almost immediately, that player would, would, would drop away. And um, it was con- sort of thought of as a curse. Appearing on Sports Illustrated was not considered good for your career. But actually, if you think about it statistically, it makes sense. If you've done so well, if you're on such a hot streak that you get onto the cover of Sports Illustrated statistically speaking that hot streak is going to come to an end and it'll come to an end after you've been on the, on the cover so you know there are very few Michael Jordans around who maintain their form forever and ever and ever uh, so you could say that about Joe Root he's suffering from that a little bit we all got so used to him just basically carrying the whole England batting lineup and scoring hundreds of runs while everyone else around him just sort of collapsed like a flan in a cupboard um, <laughs> yes I mean the good the good thing here um, and by way of a bit of a bridge to the main part of this podcast episode, is that he's not coming in at 30 for two, as he used to when he was captain. Um, because our, our two leading run scorers in the Test Series so far are Zach Crawley with 200 runs after four innings. Very pleasing round average of 50. And Ollie Pope coming in at three, averaging 60-61 uh, with 243 runs after four innings. Um, so there's been runs at the top of the order for England, uh, and that has at least covered for, for Joe Root's failures. Uh, but I, I say that it's a bridge to the rest of the episode because um, in May 2016, Ollie Pope and Zach Crawley played a game of cricket against each other. Mm, went head to head. Ollie Pope was the captain of Cranley School. And Zach Crawley was the captain of Tunbridge School, mm. and and they played uh, barely eight years ago in a in a school match against each other. Uh, they both scored uh, impressive hundreds. Um, Cranley uh, were successful, um, despite Zach Crawley's 140. And um, and and why is this relevant to, to the theme today? Well, it's two big English private schools. Um, that have contributed England's top order. This isn't an aberration. No, this has been a this has been a topic of 
interest to you and me, Johnny, for some time. To what extent does cricket have a class problem? It clearly does. It has, it just, just statistically speaking, cricket does have uh, a class problem. For those listeners overseas, we probably ought to do a bit of do a bit of um, scene setting here. Now, Johnny and I are in England, obviously, and this is where we um, we grew up. And in England, we have a two-lane educational system where uh, there mo- the, the vast majority of schools, I think 93% of schools, are entirely state-funded, and then the remainder are privately funded f- and fees are paid uh, for attendance. Now, th- this is relatively common. There are, there are very few countries in the world where that kind of system um doesn't exist but the outcomes for society in general and sport in particular in England are remain pretty stark. Uh, If you look at our politics um, 19 of our Prime Ministers have been to one school Eton, 7 of them have been to another, Harrow uh, more of whom uh, later. Of our last 5 Prime Ministers since 2016 Two have been to Eton. One went to Winchester, which is one. Well, Rishi Sunak went to Winchester, uh, which is the sort of a, a, a sort of another one that's on the same level as, as Eton and Harrow in terms of cost and length of history. So the private school system clearly still holds sway in the UK. It wasn't long ago that our head of government, Boris Johnson. Uh, head of the state religion, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the heir to the throne, Prince William, all went to the same school. So the private school system is still politically an extremely powerful network within the UK. And what we're interested in today is how this has translated to cricket and sport in general uh, over the last couple of hundred years. Yeah, and the um, the independent Commission for Equality in Cricket, uh, which was uh, the body that was put together after March 2021 in the wake of the Yorkshire racism scandal um, to evaluate the state of uh, equality in cricket, found that cricket in England was elitist and exclusionary. And I quote, private schools and old boy networks make it impenetrable for the working class. Mm. Um, So you know, at every level of cricket, that's uh, that was the the remit of the ICEC. Um, they they found that that was uh, a problem, um, but it is reflected in in the England Test side over over the years. Um, you, you know, for example, the report found that of the specialist batters, for example, that debuted for England in Tests since 2011, 95% of them white. That'll be a future, uh, future uh, topic of a future episode. But seventy-seven percent of them have come from private schools. Mm. Now that is very high when only five percent of the British population go to such schools. Yeah. Now, full disclosure here before we get too far from the beginning of this, uh, I went to Harrow, sort of private school, public school is what is that? That's a confusing, confusing nomenclature of schooling in England. Public schools are the sort of the old actually the oldest sort of private fee-paying schools so it's a bit weird 
Um, Johnny, what's your education? Uh, yeah, I went to school called Bancrofts, which was um, a, uh, a mixed, uh, but also a private school. Mm, yeah, Harrow being all all boys still, I think. And Harrow in particular is, is just worth a mention because <clears throat> it is identified within the ICEC report because of the historic game that Harrow play against Eton at Lords every year. Mm, yeah. I think it's the longest continual fixture. Yeah, exactly. It's been played every year bar five since 1805. And those years were the were war years or, or lockdown. Mm-hmm. And um, the recommendation in the report was that uh, 2023 should be the last year that Eton versus Harrow takes place at Lords, and it should be replaced with a national schools final yep. that is open for competition. Yep, yep. Um, that though caused uh, a certain amount of um, backlash within the MCC, who, in whose gift fixtures at Lords remain, and so the the there was a stay of execution until 2028, when there is going to be another. Um, another vote on that and we'll see whether Eton and Harrow continues to be played at Lords. Any any famous uh, famous English players from Eton and Harrow that you can think? Oh, 100%. Think oh, yeah. and recent. Yeah, like him. Nick Compton. Yeah. Um, uh, Gary Balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary Balance I think came to Harrow on a scholarship when I was when I was there. I myself played a few games against a very young Sam Northeast. I think I was in la- the last year at Harrow when he was in the second year, uh, and you know he's sort of the sort of guy who would just effortlessly take me for twelve or fifteen runs and over until I got taken off. Um, he, you know, he's he's an interesting uh, an interesting case um, because he didn't go on to play for England, but in his time at Harrow, he scored in one season I don't know if it was his last season at school he scored 22 centuries in one season wow and the application I mean and he's obviously a, a hugely talented cricketer talented enough to go on and have a long career for Hampshire and continue his career at Glamorgan even now um, but at the age of 16 or 17 I couldn't concentrate to the end of a sentence let alone for the time it takes to score 2,200 runs and more in a season of cricket. You know, the difference between, you know, an enthusiastic and somewhat scrappy amateur and someone who is going to go on to become a professional is is just enormous in terms of talent and in terms of mental application. And I think I think that's probably part of it, right? The the indulgence of time to bat and bat and bat that's afforded to you mm. at a at a private school. I think sets you up for for success, and that could be one of the contributing factors. Yeah. The second is pitches. You know, a, a school being able to afford to have ground staff, and and to make pitches that are true. Yeah. Is better for batters. Absolutely. And uh, facilities. You know, nets, bowling machines, coaches, and all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, that that you know that there was a there was a a teacher in charge of cricket when I was at, at Harrow and he was a former professional who had then gone on to become a teacher um, but there was also a full-time coach mm-hmm. whose job it was to, to be the, the coach for the uh, for the first first 11 yeah and, and so effectively and, had a manager and a coach you know? and then I mean a, a point that's been made made often including by Rob Key when he was a media man not not when he was managing director of English cricket um, was about the just the cash barriers to playing representative cricket in the county system as you as you grow up, um, travel to games is expensive. 
the amount of kit that you need as a young batter is is a barrier mm-hmm. for, for 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 many. Even match fees and uh, and club membership fees. Um, I I play at Richmond Cricket Club. Even for for kids, it's upwards of of a hundred pounds a season mm-hmm. to become a member. Yep. that is that is a bridge too far for for many. For many, yep. yep. Um, and so in in various ways, there are there are barriers. Yeah, absolutely. And and then there is another thing, which in order to become a batter, um, I feel this is this is a th- this is a theory. There's no no statistics to back it up. But I feel the other the another thing you need is an engaged person to help you, an engaged adult to help you. And because literally you need someone to throw the ball or to feed the bowling machine. And whether that's a parent or a teacher or a coach or a godparent or an uncle or whatever it is, um, you need someone there. And when you're in a situation where fees are being paid for your, for your schooling... I suspect that there is a greater chance that there is someone in your family or your immediate network who is able to give up the time to do that. They don't have to necessarily work every hour God sends to bring in the money to keep the roof over the head and the food on the table. And so there is just that potentially, it's a theory that there is an unfair advantage given there to people who want to become batters. And then if you flip it over and look at bowlers, I'm a bowler. What I'm going to do in the next few weeks, season is now sort of on the horizon, so I'm going to start my pre-season routine, which is that I'm going to go over to the park with the nets in it, with some cones and a stump, and I'm going to bowl. And all you need in order to prepare for a season of bowling is a bag of balls, a stump, and if you can get your hands on one, a cone. And that's it. So, you know... It... Whereas as, as a batter, I, I probably need to, to go and find some facilities that have a bowling machine, uh, book it for, for an hour or more, mm-hmm. Make sure I've got someone with me to, to manage the bowling machine. Yeah, muggins here. <laughs> and and so the, yeah, the barriers are just are just larger. And you and I have had this sort of pet theory that um, batters go to private school and bowlers go to state school now we've been looking at the schooling of of the current england squad and a few kind of recent greats yeah so you you picked out here how many how many 10 um uh, no 11 bowlers from the last sort of 30 40 years all either playing now like literally currently in india or played have played in the last sort of 20 30 years i uh, know you put fred truman in here uh, uh, as well yeah let's I'm just i'm just going to read them out very very quickly uh so read the list tom hartley rian ahmed Sherb bashir uh, jimmy anderson stuart broad ian botham bob willis fred truman Derek underwood graham swan all but three went to uh state-funded schools and one of those three was stuart broad so stuart broad is the outlier he went to oakham um uh, which is a private school and and the the huge volume of wickets that he took makes the statistics look a little fairer than they should be uh, but it should be noted he's the son of an english cricketer by contrast the batters you know both from the current side and and some some recent greats so crawley tunbridge duckett stowe pope cranley root Walksop, 
Bairstow, St. Peter's, Harry Brook, Sedbergh. All of those are private schools. Mm, yeah. Um, and then you've picked out the greats, Cook, Strauss, Bell and Gower. All of them went to private schools. Yeah, and, uh, and pretty big name private schools uh, as well. Mm. Now, um, there's, again, the, the corollary in here. Stokes left school with one GCSE mm. um, in PE. Uh, so he dropped out of his comprehensive. I hope he got a decent mark in PE. I, I feel he, he probably would. Yeah. Um, I don't think Red Bull would have picked him up to sponsor him if he, if he did. <laughs> do, you think, do you think you get an offer like you do for university? <laughs> Uh, and Ben Folks went to uh, a technical college in Essex. Um, but that, uh, those two aside, you know, it's, um, mm. they've, they've gone to some pretty, pretty expensive schools. I mean, you have been quite selective with your, your group of batters that you've picked out from the past. Because you could have chosen Michael Atherton and Asher Hussain. Both of whom I could have done. To uh, so, so in my defence there, um, Nasser Hussain went to a private school. Um, he went to Forest. But uh, Michael Atherton uh, went to a grammar school, mm, and mm. so the 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 era of grammar school skews things a little bit as well because that's that was selective school. Yeah, and actually that now has served up a good segue because I was looking into the the future of this. I wanted to see whether this this rule held true um, for women's cricket in England as well. So I looked up the schooling of. Um, Women, the current England women's cricket team and a few past uh, England women's players. And I found it does broadly hold true. Of the sort of 10 batters that I picked out from across England's kind of setup at the moment, tests one day and 2020, um, I found three who went to state state funded schools, one of whom, Tammy Beaumont, went to, went to a grammar school, but the rest all went to pretty big name mm-hmm. um private schools um, I mean but it is interesting that Tammy Beaumont who's probably the premier batter in England women's cricket at the moment did go to state uh, a state uh, funded school and then among the bowlers it's much more equal um, I picked out seven and um, three of them went to state schools and three of them went to private schools so it's it sort of broadly holds true one interesting thing that I found with the women's team is that the younger players the younger bowlers went to private schools mm. so potentially that sort of co- that correlation is breaking down but the the fact of the matter is is this if with current training data if you asked ai to paint you a picture of a cricket fan mm. in britain it would probably be a mid-20s south asian heritage yeah uh person yeah if you picked one at random yeah. or threw a gathered every cricket fan in in england together in a in one big stadium and then threw a brick the chances of hitting a mid-20s guy mm-hmm. of south asian yeah. origin are pretty high probably um but overwhelmingly if you asked ai to draw a uh professional cricketer or even worse uh, a, a professional cricketer who's played for England, it's almost certainly going to be a privately educated white uh, person. Yep, absolutely. Um, and that is even more skewed when you get to batters. Uh, if you if you're asked asking the AI to come up with a bowler, they might have a northern accent. Yep, yep. Uh, but but otherwise, that's that's indicative, and um, and that discrepancy 
is is what's problematic here. Now, there's a couple of things here that I, a couple of questions that I, I want to, to, to raise. Well, the, the, it is interesting that the, the way that we have found to illustrate cricket's class problem is through schooling. Because I think in England, certainly more than any other country that I've spent time in, where you went to school is so, is still so um, predictive of your outcomes. Mm-hmm. And and that is that's well, it's just a uh, it's just a fact, and it's not a good fact. Uh, it doesn't. It's not something that we can all be proud of and sing "Land of Hope and Glory" about. Um, and the other the other question I have here is it, that I suppose it's answered by what we've just talked about. Why does cricket? Why is cricket seen as being a game? For the middle class and the upper class, and not seen as a working class game. It's and 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 I was thinking about this, and I was actually thinking it's a bit unfair to single cricket out here, because I can only actually think of in the UK. I can only think of two sports which are not considered to be middle class pastimes, and they are football and rugby league. If you think rugby union, tennis, golf. You know, motor racing. Mm. These all have sort of quite sort of middle class overtones. And why? Why is that? Well, what do you think? Well, I, th- I think the barriers to, to playing cricket um, at any scale are, are higher um, in, in England. You need more kit. You need better facilities. Uh, you need more space, and crucially, you need more time. Um, and, and I suppose that's reflected in, in other sports as well. You can't just jump into F1 racing. Uh, you could do with a car. Um, rugby is, is, is a complex sport as cricket in terms of understanding the laws. Um, you probably also need a referee. Um, whereas football, the barriers to entry are so much lower. Uh, and, uh, and that's why that, that one has, has achieved universal appeal. Um, and then it's been backed up with with various structures and media interests too, right? Um, from a structural perspective, um, it became literally association football mm. um, very early on. Cricket had the opportunity to, to go a similar way and it diverged and went the county route. So uh, that uh, that controlled power in uh, in a very different way to, to how football set up um, and uh, and the I mean we talked last week about uh, stopping cricket being free to air and and the the emergence of dominance of sky sports that too has uh, put cricket in in the hands of the few not the many mm. um, and and increased the barriers to, to engagement with it so I think I think holistically it's it's problematic um, I, I think the so uh, we don't often talk well of the hundred, <clears throat> but in terms of addressing some of these structural inequalities, the hundred is an interesting uh, solution. Absolutely, I think. I mean, my my thing about the hundred is I think everybody kind of expects me to to be very anti the hundred, but I'm really not anti it because of what it is. I'm anti it because I don't think it was necessary. Uh, I think that you're right that it is trying to address the point of 
lack of engagement in cricket among certain sectors of society, mainly the young, trying to bring more young people into cricket. And I, that is laudable. And the way it's doing that is by trying to simplify the game a bit, but mainly by putting it on free-to-air television and, and making the tickets nice and cheap. And my problem with it is that I don't see why we couldn't have just done that with 2020 cricket in the first place. That's right. And, and I think branding things as cities rather than as counties, yeah. I think, is, is part of it. It also theoretically was meant to be gender equal um, to, to enable that. Uh, and somewhat condescendingly um, making it more appealing by getting hula hoops and quavers to sponsor teams sure. rather than um, Waitrose and, and <laughs> yes. Yes. England were at one point sponsored by Waitrose weren't they like, <laughs> why does cricket seem to have a class problem <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive back into history, if we can. Yes, yes. Back, to, to, back to the schedule. To look if uh, there are any kind of early directions of travel and structural issues from the very beginning of cricket that, that are still reflected today. Mm. Yeah, so you're talking about gentlemen versus players, aren't you? That's right, yeah. So, so you, mentioned, you mentioned just earlier that um, batting, uh, batting was seen as the, the southern private school uh, domain of very high cachet, and uh, and bowlers were were the the northern workhorses, um, but that's literally how it was. When when um, before even older than the Eton versus Harrow game, the gentlemen played the players. Uh, so this was from eighteen oh six. They played often four times a year. Uh, uh, a match of cricket until mm-hmm. 1962. Okay, and who were these teams? So the gentlemen were members of the leisured class, unencumbered by the tiresome business of, of having to make a living. Yeah, that's so tedious, isn't it? Players were members of the working class, which usually meant little leisure and lots of labour. Uh, so today, the idea that uh, a bunch of amateurs like you and I could play against professionals is ridiculous did have you seen that thing about you know something like 12 percent of men think they could have taken a game off serena williams <laughs> right <exactly. laughs> like, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'd be fine <laughs> yeah 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 ridiculous um but but actually back then amateurs versus professionals was exactly what gentlemen versus players was hmm. the professionals were paid to play yeah um but they had to be paid to play because they were the working class. Yeah, needed, otherwise they would not have been able to make a living. They needed time off off work. And so... Um, they were paid to play, not to practice. Precisely. Uh, and therefore they were they were inevitably the, the bowlers um, who who bowled at the much more elegant, high cachet batters yeah. who were members of the, uh, the upper classes. Who had time to practice. And grounds. And... Uh, equipment yeah uh, but also less brawn so there's an interesting angle here that it was the working class it was the miners and the the steel workers who uh were stronger yeah and happier to bowl yeah. eight over spells into the wind yeah well us us bowlers are are, are sort of strong manly types giants of old broad-shouldered strong-legged types whereas you batters are all sort of slightly weak and meager sort of pale that's right pale creatures yeah. um 
No, I mean the. Um... For those that don't know, Johnny and I are pretty much exactly the same size. <laughs> <laughs> the um, uh, we should we we like to run stats. So in the uh, two hundred and seventy four games over the one hundred and fifty six years, the players uh, won twice as many as the gentlemen. Yep. Yep. And 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 what's more, not unlike the Ashes, it's quite heavily skewed. The early ones were won quite regularly by the gentlemen, and by the end, it was pretty much wall to wall players. And you've got to bear in mind that Fred Truman was playing in the last gentlemen versus players game. You know, Lord, you know, Lord Puffbutter going out to bat against Fiery Fred just just finished bowling out the West Indies. Yeah, I mean, I, very often in the in the late nineteenth century, the gentlemen might might turn up with one bowler forget one pace bowler that we take to India <laughs> they, the gentleman would turn up with one bowler the players would turn up with seven or eight bowlers and cycle through them so it shouldn't be surprising to us that a quarter of the players victories were by more than by, by an innings yep <laughs> big thumpings big oh thumpings. and actually the players frequently loaned men to the gentleman just to make a game of it yeah yeah and it, and you know you're not you're not mucking around here as well you know this is these aren't these aren't being played in the grounds of some stately home you know these are matches at the oval and at lords uh, you know and and players really went for it you know the, the largest margins of victory you know the players won in 1934 at the oval they won by an innings and 305 runs you know the the the, uh, the at one point at one point someone took um, yeah, ten for thirty-seven in innings. Uh, Alec Kennedy for the players at the Oval in nineteen twenty-seven. I mean, you know, they, these people—they weren't messing around. These weren't knockabout matches for benefits. These were they, people were taking this very, very seriously. W. G. Grace scored a double hundred for the um, for the gentleman uh, at Hove in eighteen seventy-one. But despite that dominance of the players of the paid-for professional bowlers, um, it was the amateurs and the and the upper classes and the elegant batters who ended up running the game. Mm-hmm. We mentioned in the episode about apartheid that when England toured abroad, they did under the auspices of the MCC, the very same yeah. people who were the yeah. gentlemen. Uh, indeed, the English, England captains up until 1962 were much much more likely to be gentlemen the than gentlemen. players. Yeah, yeah. You don't, uh, you know, this old trope that bowlers shouldn't captain now disproven by by Pat Cummins, yeah. um, you know, stems from from exactly that, um, and and even when they even when the game did professionalise, and uh, you started getting professional English captains, nineteen sixty two onwards, um, still the the tour managers or the the managing directors or the coaches or the selectors, the board of selectors, were much more likely to be gentlemen. So the hidden hand of the MCC and of these these upper classes stood strong with that amateur uh, elitism, even though they weren't playing and representing England anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And gentlemen versus players, which I find I find this fascinating because it survived everything. You know, the game was just, it was in its infancy when it, when the gentlemen versus players series began. And by the time it ended, we had the rise. The, the counties were fully established, but players would would leave their counties to play, and you know, t- people would go to play in the gentlemen versus players matches instead of playing um, for their counties. And in the in the sort of the, the halcyon days of amateur cricket, which was the eighteen fifties to the eighteen nineties, um, they had. Th- 
thousands, tens of thousands of people turning up to watch this ridiculous spectacle of you know literally literal feudal lords playing cricket against you know against amateurs. It was it was quite something. Amateur cricket was a was a massive massive deal in England. There's a there's a, a Harrow has a a, a great singing tradition. Uh, they have ninety six school songs, and one of them is uh, called "A Gentleman's a Bowling," <laughs> uh, in which it describes ten thousand folk a strolling around the boundary. So, <laughs> a gentleman's a bowling, and down the wickets go. People turned up to see the upper classes doing things mm. back then, so that really contributed to the continuation of the gentleman versus players kind of paradigm, which which only ended in nineteen sixty three. I'd like to talk about in this in this breath is how this is reflected internationally and how it's uh, it's gone with England's reputation uh, abroad when playing international cricket mm. um, England famously uh, invent games that others perfect mm. um, as uh, as evidenced by most ashes series Yes, and uh, by and, and and by the entire world of football. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and I, I think historically we've kind of been okay with that because it's indicative of our amateurism, and uh, you know we can uh, we can circle back to the spirit of cricket, even if even if some brutish Australians kind of charge in and yes, and ab- absolutely, yes, absolutely, you know. Um, Flashman, Flashman put it put it put it like this, didn't he? So, you know, a, a, a caveman can beat up your entire family, but that doesn't make him your social superior, does it? <laughs> um, so it caused me to to look at whether these these same class structures are in place in other countries. So, in India, um, it is to a certain extent. Um, you know, there are zero. Uh, members of the lowest caste in India yeah, ever, ever represented. We're treading on India. ground that I have very little knowledge of, but there is a difference in India, which mm-hmm. is that cricket is the people's game in India. I know football is also extremely popular, particularly in the northern part of the country, but cricket is the people's game in a way that it isn't in England, because in England the people's game is, is football. Everybody is everybody has their football team. Well, in India, everyone has their, their cricket team, but it is still very heavily broken down to sort of private school play the players who play for india have have generally gone through a private school often on a scholarship but nevertheless that's where they've sort of honed their craft that's right the bigger divide in india seems to be um between different cities which perhaps is why the ipl has taken off so so well um uh, mahendra singh Dhoni was always held up as the example of the the small town boy that that stayed true to his roots and managed to get through. <laughs> Where's he come but, from? But he, came, he came from like not one of the top ten Indian cities, but it still has you know an absurdly number of million people. Yeah, exactly. It would be it would be the, the, the biggest city in, in yeah, the it's UK. slightly yeah. smaller than Birmingham. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so that's how it's reflected in India. Australia is worth thinking about too, um, because it looked for a time like there weren't many Australian cricketers from private schools. Um, 
And so I thought, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. How have they managed to avoid that? It turns out the school system in Australia is just set up slightly differently, and Catholic schools is the third category, sure. which are selective and sometimes paid for. Um, and, and there's a, so actually the, the other two categories just split into a third, so which skews the numbers slightly. Australia has also got a couple of other dynamics at play. They have a four-term system at schools, mm -hmm. of which cricket is played in two of them. So while cricket traditionally in England is disrupted in the summer term because that coincides with exams, that happens in Australia, but they've got a fourth term where they also play cricket. Truly, so truly it is heaven on earth. So it is, it is set up well, plus the weather means they just they basically have a guaranteed half a year of playing. A really long cricket season. I mean, I have, I have long said that when I'm king, I will change the uh, the, the school system in, in the UK so that the exams are before Christmas. I mean, it's ridiculous that we have our exams in the summertime. Yeah, I mean, can you make it affect the hockey season rather than the pure cricket season? So you go, you go to... You, I mean, imagine it. You know, you're doing your exams from mid-November until mid-December, and then, way end of exams, and it's Christmas time. And then, but when would they play rugby and football? I hear you ask. Well, it's all right. You play January. Hmm. You know, that, that's fine. And then you get into the cricket season. And it's not disrupted. This is this is my that's my manifesto. Yeah, that's that my, my, that one, my one policy. I'd uh, I'd vote for you, Paul. You know, um, vote for kings. Yeah. Um, but but no, actually, since uh, since those days, actually, since the, um, you know, when you dig into Australian stats a little further, um, actually, since 1945, about the same proportion of Australian Ashes players as England Ashes players have, have come from private schools. Um, and... Uh, and it's, it's, it's actually uh, about the same. So, so while there's this popular imagination that um, you know chippy colonials are, are bending the spirit of cricket to, to get under the, the skin of born, born to rule tormentors <laughs> um, actually it's about the same class wise sure uh, through the ashes it's, yeah, just, interesting. it's just a popular narrative so, um, so let's just take a couple of minutes as we draw to a close here to say what um, what can be done about this and how could could the situation be improved? If if you've told us what you'd do if you were prime minister to the school system mm. uh, about exams, but um, you're you've now just been appointed the head of the ECB, you've got to implement the ICEC report to, to try and in some way improve class equality in cricket. What's the what's the one step you take? Yeah, I mean, it, I actually think the ECB, have, they have a huge amount of influence here and could do a huge amount, but actually the thing that needs to be done is that in, in England it's, it's a, um, a major low-level gripe that the school playing fields have, just, have been sold off. Over the last 40 years, by successive governments, school playing fields have been sold off for development. And once you've done that, they never come back. You know, private clubs and and you know community community initiatives they don't fill the gap. The way to improve the number of sports played by children is to give them the facilities to play those sports. And by facilities, I mean space, equipment, and education. Absolutely. Yeah. If I if I could take one step, it would be to to get every single private school in the country to twin with a nearby state school and enable use of their facilities for 
cricketers at, at the state school. Mm. If you could bridge one further to a local cricket club to then encourage uh, integration within that club or, or whatever, you, you'd very quickly start to, to not just build access to facilities uh, and, and uh, equalise participation within club mm. cricket, um, you'd also identify very quickly what the other barriers were yeah. uh, that you could then address soon after that. Absolutely. And, and while there are some, some great initiatives out there, uh, the name of, of Andrew Flintoff's TV programme uh, escapes me, but it was to um, bringing more South Asian players into cricket uh, at school level. Uh, that's been very successful. There's the Chance to Shine initiative, which has also been very successful. It does feel like, in comparison to the the the, the scouring of sport from schools, it does feel like it's very much you know, rearranging deck chairs. Or, well, it's not really, but it's adding deck chairs, mm. um, not changing the system uh, very much. Um, it comes down to money, unfortunately. However, the ECB could do other things. More TV on more ter uh, cricket on terrestrial TV will help because when people see people like them doing things on TV, they are inspired to do it themselves. That's right, and um, it's yet another reason to back Ben Stokes because, as a uh, symbol of of making cricket exciting again, and of being a uh, working class hero uh, at the forefront of cricket and a role model for others who uh, have not gone to the top schools may have not succeeded academically uh, but are at the very top of their game and uh, being both fair and eloquent and innovative with the sport that we love um, I think he's a great role model and, and should be supported more. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Super. Well, um, thank you, Paul. It's been an interesting, interesting discussion. Um, should we just tease a, a couple of other episodes that are, are coming up? Yeah, uh, later this spring. Absolutely. So we're going to do the ne our next episode is likely to be one on partition. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we're going to dipping take a, a hesitant toe. Yes. Well, you know, uh, we got some really good feedback uh, about the kind of more history-oriented episode that we did about apartheid. Mm. And uh, and with England on tour in India for the best part of three months, uh, it feels like an opportunity to, to look at the old fault lines. Uh, England, India and independence uh, in 1948. Um, the, the divisions um, between India and Pakistan in the, in the years and decades that, that followed and, and other dynamics related to that. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, later on, uh, for reasons which will become clear, we're going to take a look at cricket in Corfu. Cricket in Corfu, and and maybe uh, the the broader influence of the armed forces in playing cricket around the world. Yeah, absolutely. So, some interesting topics to come. Thank you very much for joining us. Very good. Have a wonderful afternoon. Bye now. Cheerio.